this week on the It's a Monkey podcast. Ethereum basically have created a platform to enable smart contracts to happen. And I'll just give a quick thumbnail of what smart contracts is, or are, sorry, should I say. Basically, if you think of a vending machine, if you put your money in, you look for your product, you pick it, you get your sweets out, that's the end of the transaction. Now, the actual vending machine itself carries out all the, the programming in the background, with, which is basically an if-then statement. So if you put your money in, then the food comes out. And essentially, smart contracts are a very, very powerful vending machine. It's mm-hmm. probably the best way of and saying it. And programmable vending it's machine. It's programmable. Right? So, that, for example... That's the, the really interesting Absolutely. Piece. And especially when it comes to looking at things like the Internet of Things and those type of other technologies, I'll give you an example just to sort of... Just so your listeners can sort of get an idea of where this is coming in. Back in uh, October, November time last year, the CBA and Wells Fargo Bank looked at a transaction. This was very, very, very well publicised where there was cotton that was going from Queensland in, in northern uh, Australia across to China. Now, once the actual product hit a certain longitude and latitude, there were sensors on the boat that picked up. They'd gone through that latitude, which meant they were in Chinese waters. That then enabled a smart contract. If then, if we get past this longitude latitude, then money will be released. Good morning, good afternoon, hello, wherever you are in the world. We're recording this podcast on Friday, the 2nd of June. It is June already. It's uh, nearly halfway through the year. Isn't it fun how uh, time speeds up as you get older with each year? And Interesting that. Uh, you're listening to episode number 95 of the It's a Monkey podcast. We talk about everything relating to tech, startups, entrepreneurship, on the show, we got a great show coming up with you now for you. Now, last week we mentioned that uh, Bitcoin had hit an all-time high of around uh, two thousand seven hundred, two thousand eight hundred dollars, around that. So I thought I'd drag in Tim Lee, who's uh, the, the author of a book about Bitcoin and the blockchain called Down the Rabbit Hole, and we had an extensive, fascinating chat to him about what's going on in the Bitcoin space, what's happening with blockchain, and because it's such a convoluted technology. We like to revisit this every now and then because it's quite difficult for for us uh, mere mortals to get in the know to understand all the different building blocks of the blockchain and Bitcoin. So that's a great extended long-form chat that we had with Tim Lee uh, earlier this week in our Sydney downtown studio. But as always, we like to touch base on some of the tech news that's happening. And um, with me as usual, probably for the last time in person for a little while actually, is mm-hmm. Kate Frappel. Kate, thanks for joining us no worries good to be back so kate's going to be off to um canada going to be working for us from from canada for a little while so we'll still be doing the podcast we're probably going to take a two-week break while whilst kate goes and gets settled across the pond so we'll be playing some very interesting repeats we've had some great interviews over the last few years so we'll play some repeats for you and then uh, we'll kick it off and kate and i will do the podcast um, at the opposite ends of our skype line yeah, it'll be uh, an interesting experiment, but I think it'll go well. I'm sure it will. So, Kate, in the news, um, interesting uh, X Twitter and X is it Google engineer have made Apple as so an X an X Twitter engineer and an X Apple designer have made a camera app for 
the Apple iPhone, where they realized that the Apple iPhone actually has the potential to essentially be a pro professional camera. And they've created an app that allows you sort of very detailed calibration of a lot of camera features. And it's only three bucks or so on the App Store. Tell us a little bit more about this camera app. Yeah, so this um, app is launching, well, it's launched now, $3 to start with, but there's a possibility that it will start rising. It's intended to sit beside the current camera app. So if you think of the current app as uh, to take a quick snapshot of something on the go or like as a reference, so this new app called Halide, I think that's how you would say it, is sort of more professional photography and it's there for if you want to take a really good photo and you've got time to stop and tweak the exposure and, and make it a really good piece of photography. Now with Android, I've actually got this, I've got a pro mode built in uh, mm. where I can fiddle with everything from white balance to um, the, the aperture t uh, sort of size, t uh, the speed, etc. Does that not come native with Apple or do you have some sort of pro mode with Apple as well? So Apple mostly rely on their apps. So there are apps where you can make those tweaks and they've got those uh, capabilities. But inside the native app, a little bit like they have the flash and uh, I've forgotten what it's called now, but the focus, mm -hmm. AF, I think. Mm -hmm. Autofocus? Autofocus, that might be it, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, they've got things like that and you can tweak the lighting, but um, not full-on editing right. capabilities. I think App Apple try to make their products very idiot-proof, don't they? So they don't like to let you get under the hood very easily. But Android on my HTC, um, I've got a pro mode where every now and then, exactly when I do have a bit of time and I'm trying to take a nicer photo, I can fiddle with the aperture, the timing, the ISO, and sometimes you can actually get get a nice result. You can actually take a the, yeah the raw, very very high definition version of the photo as well. Yeah, so on the new one, there is a high definition option as well on Apple, and there's even a filter you can change like black and white, sepia, stuff, and there's a timer as well. So it's got basic features, but not editing capabilities. I saw actually I got a notification yesterday that HTC is releasing a brand new phone, uh, oh, okay. which is going to be interesting because they released I think a new one last year. So they've obviously and it's it's interesting because they've they've put the camera very much center, camera and audio they've put very much center of the new HTC. Where the camera, you can for example just squeeze the phone and it brings mm. the camera app up, and then I think you oh. squeeze it again and it takes the photo. Um, oh. And Interesting. Yeah, and very high quality audio speakers as well. So I'm an HTC fan, been using HTC for ages, and my phone's not that old, but um, I'd be interested to see how that actually works. Also, you know, latest processes and all sorts of bits and pieces. So um, HTC is is still in the great, it's still in the game, and um, I like the fact that I've got a nice fat external sort of SD card as well. It's yes. like, I don't know, 80 gigs or something. And, and it's basically empty. I don't need such a big <laughs> one, but put some music on there and um, you can, I, th I think Android supports up to one terabyte, something crazy, something absolute. I don't think 
I think they're only just starting to manufacture those that big. But it'd be really interesting when those exist. You could, it could, I mean, you could carry the whole of Wikipedia literally on your phone, you know? You could. Well, in a way, you do. You've got the internet in your pocket. But even without the internet, you know, yeah. you, could, you, you could carry sort of interesting things and movies. And But yeah, streaming's definitely... Well, what we forget as well is we in Australia, it's, it's relatively cheap bandwidth. I know we complain a lot, but in other countries like India or Africa, it's really expensive. So to have things local mm. and to have um, light bandwidth version of, of, of apps is, is very important for us. Useful. A, a, a little bit less so, but... Um, you know, on Spotify, I I have a few albums that I've saved locally onto my phone and it actually does come in handy every now and then when I'm on a plane or camping or something like that and I've got these few albums. I actually do find myself using it. Yeah. Oh, I'm similar as well. I've got a few that I can listen to offline on Spotify, which is good because long story short, I just changed my phone over to prepaid before I uh, go overseas. And, yeah, now I don't want to chew through all my prepaid data. <laughs> yeah, got a lot more <laughs> so control. So I just play my um, saved songs. So that was uh, the new f- uh, f- um, phone app for – sorry, camera app for iPhone, and it's called what? Halide? Halide, yeah. H-A-L-I-D-E. So, yep, be worth if you're an iPhone person um, to have a play with that. That's quite good. And um, another story out of Google, actually. Google have released – finally released – a new smart board, smart board being, you know, something traditional, like the traditional whiteboard, but using collaboration and networking features. So what, what's it called? This Google Jamboard. The Jamboard. So it's, it's sort of like a, a medium-sized whiteboard that you can write on, draw on, and you can get two-way interaction from remote people. It's also a touchboard as well, right? Yep. Yep. So it's 55 inches. Uh, and it comes with a pen and touch input. So, yeah, really easy to write things, erase things, um, and it hooks straight into the, the Google Suite. So all your docs and spreadsheets, images, you name it, can you can pull and drag, resize everything on the whiteboard. And that's really cool. I mean, I think Google are getting more into the enterprise type of space, and it's obviously a very, you know, side project for them. It costs about 5000 US, which... yeah. For a company, is actually not that much. I mean, we've got a smart board here that I'm actually sitting in the studio slash boardroom where I'm staring straight at this whiteboard. And it's, it's a smart whiteboard where people can log on remotely and watch us write on it. Mm-hmm. And we can save a snapshot of what we write into a file, into a JPEG, but it's only one way. So they can watch the board. Our remote team can watch the board, but they can't contribute to the board. Whereas with this Jamboard, um, it is actually two-way. You can sit with your tablet, watch it, and you can write on there. I'd be interested to try that, though, to see in reality how that actually, yeah. if it works well or if it's a bit clunky. Yeah, how easy it is to navigate around would be a good test. And, of course, with remote work really becoming more mainstream, I know there's a lot of companies that have – uh, you know, Yahoo, Marissa Mayer famously sort of ended remote work. Or, and I think IBM has also sort of cut back on remote work. But, you know, these big companies are a little bit unusual because the smaller and medium-sized companies are moving the other way. Mm. They actually giving more flexibility and more, you know, remote work. It suits everyone in terms of being able to hire from different locations and sometimes even have what they call follow the sun 
teams where, for instance, in the technical world, if you have a reliability team, they follow the sun, so it follows your users that are online and mm. just to check everything's working. And, that, you know, so there's a variety of benefits or tools for remote work um, are just are incredibly important. I know for ourselves that we're always looking for tools that help us even capture or, or sort of maintain a culture with the remote team is hard. And I think a, a two-way whiteboard is, is great. One thing I didn't see, do they... Did they video, could you sort of pop a video sort of stream of mm. someone into the board? Because that would be really cool. Mm, I can't say I saw it on the video, but I wouldn't be surprised. I think you would be able to pull stuff in like that. Because that makes a lot of sense because one of the issues with remote is sometimes if you've just got someone's voice, it just feels like there's, you know, there's just there's, there's just a resource that's a voice and there's, who's the person behind that voice? So we're mm. trying to, with our team, just have photos and videos and so we've got a sense of each other that you know we want to try and not lose that sense that there's people behind all this work not just faces and not just slack names as well definitely Uh, on a bit of a side note uh it's interesting from a business point of view so jamboard support and management is 600 dollars a year on top of the 5k 600 dollars for what are you paying for support Mm-hmm. And management. 600 a year. Yep. So 300 a year for early customers, but 600 a year for everyone else. And that, on top of that, you also need to have access to the Google Suite plan. Which you pay for. Which you pay for as well. Yeah. So it's an ongoing cost that they're making money out of as well. Yeah. It's yeah. not a one-off product. Yeah. No, look, I mean, Google's been trying to for a while to get more into the subscription side of business. Their ads business is, they, is very risky. All their money is coming from these ads. And apparently... Ads are on the way out. Yeah, well, (laughs) I mean, ad blockers and, you know, look, this is a whole other discussion about the philosophy of ads in our culture and uh, in our society. But does anyone consciously enjoy ads? Consciously, (laughs) right? Subconsciously, we, we benefit from it because if we have a targeted ad and we discover something we didn't know about, we've benefited from it. And that's the argument. But consciously, do we enjoy seeing things trying to be shoved down our throat no so i like i like ads for things when i've uh actively sought for one Mm. for example like like now the jam board i'm like oh i want to know more about the jam board and so they present me with a video ad yeah i'm like oh that that's what i want to see the context the context is everything the context is very important but if you're trying to do work and get throughout the day and you get a pop-up for this jam board you're like oh Oh, go away yeah Yeah, Yeah, definitely. So I I like watching ads, especially clever ones. Do you know Audi, the supermarket? Yeah. So at the moment on TV, they've got a series of ads and they're really funny. Like uh, myself and Jana in the office are always laughing at them. But those sort of ads, I'm like, yeah, I like it. And if if I came across them online, I would find them entertaining. But yeah, I wouldn't want them shoved in my face. Yeah, well, and, that, and that's the, you know, the Silicon Valley has been criticized that the fact that there's these fantastic products, Facebook, Twitter, Google, and what are most of these super smart people working on? How to do better at ads. Mm. And, and some people say that's when we've got these other huge challenges of environmentalism and political challenges and war and peace that these super smart minds are working on ads. But that's a, that, that's a topic that's a topic for another day. There's always, uh, I mean, the targeting aspects of Google and Facebook are so great that I would rather have ads 
on Google and Facebook than other non indiscriminate sort of untargeted ads as well, which is even more annoying. Yeah, you so you've almost become accustomed to having ads on in certain places. It's like on Facebook, I don't mind them as much. Mm. The retargeting does bug me a little bit, but I sort of expect Facebook to have a ton of ads now. Yeah. Whereas if I'm browsing Medium and an ad came up, that would really annoy me. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Anyway, you're listening to Kevin Garber. I'm the CEO of Manage Flutter and Manage Social. Manage Social's in very, very early alpha for a handful of people. We're still working very hard at it, but watch this space if you're a Twitter and Instagram Instagram marketer. I'm with Kate Rappel, who's my co-host, who is the design lead at Manage Flutter and Manage Social. We're going to take a break, and then we're going to chat to Tim Lee, who's the author of uh, Down the Rabbit Hole, a book about Bitcoin and blockchain. It is uh, a nice, lengthy, meaty interview. So we're going to leave it at that. We're not going to do a post-mortem of that interview because it does go for quite a little while. Um, the following two weeks, we're going to play repeats, and then Kate and myself are going to be back on board with some new podcasts. So thanks so much for joining us. Stick around. We're going to be back with the super great interview after this break. The It's a Monkey podcast is brought to you by CheckDog. Use CheckDog to easily review and monitor your website for spelling errors, broken links, and broken images, all with the push of one button. CheckDog can also automatically monitor your website and notify you of newly introduced spelling errors. Go to checkdog.com forward slash podcast to receive 50% off your first month subscription. Checkdog.com, helping the world's leading websites keep their content error-free. You're back with It's a Monkey Podcast. Now, we chat about everything relating to tech, economy, startups, and probably if you are a regular listener to this podcast, you'll hear me going on a little bit about Bitcoin and blockchain. Now, I think we first spoke about Bitcoin and blockchain quite a few years ago on this podcast when James Peter, the co-founder of Managed Filler, was still working with us. And I remember... At the time, I really had absolutely no idea what it was all about. I still basically have no idea, but just maybe a little bit more. But we're lucky enough in Sydney to actually have a Bitcoin blockchain uh, expert that's actually written a book down the rabbit hole, which is all about Bitcoin and the blockchain and the changes that it's bringing. And I've dragged him back into the studio fresh off the plane from the States where he's been at a cryptocurrency conference. And we're going to talk all about that as well. Um, happy to say again, because he's been on the podcast a couple of times, but there's been so much going on. I said to Kate, who's my co-host and, and co-producer that we just we just need to talk about blockchain again I, and Bitcoin. I just, it's, there's too much going on. Um, so, Tim Lee, who's the CEO of Veridictum, and he's the author of Down the Rabbit Hole. Thank you so much for popping into the Sydney studio. Oh, thanks, thanks for having me in, uh, Kevin. I'm a bit jet lagged from having flown in from uh, from the states yesterday, but uh, it's all good to go. It's it's a big flight that. Now, Tim, before we get into all the juicy stuff about uh, um, what's been going on, got a little surprise for you that uh, we we've we've spoken a little bit on this podcast about a person called Jimmy, who's over uh, this mystical person that that um, we get right. uh, we've dragged <laughs> him into the technological revolution, kicking and screaming. Jimmy's been worked with me for about ten years um, as as an internal accountant and we talk about all sorts of bits and pieces and I actually handed him a copy of your book because I've been saying Jimmy check out this technology and this book is great it demystifies it and Jimmy's been popping in every now and then to me and has been talking about concepts that from your book so I thought I'd drag Jimmy into the studio and we talked to Jimmy a little bit about your book so and and he can give us a little bit of a insight as 
has almost a non-technologist and a non, you know, an outsider, so to speak, a about his perception as as uh, the about the blockchain as well as in particular about the book. So, Jimmy Shumwell, first time officially um, welcoming you on the podcast. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Um, well, I think it's good to be here, but we'll see how it goes. <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I uh, appreciated uh, Kevin uh, loaning the book to me or giving it to me, whichever way it is. I found it interesting and, and to discuss the book briefly, I think what is a very complex um, process was very well described. And, and what I liked about your book was that not only was it detailed, but not so detailed that you got bored. The examples you gave were really good because they brought it to life. It showed what was happening, like the Silk Road, uh, Dado, um, those sort of things. The examples of how different, uh, to explain aspects, to actually show what would happen under certain circumstances, uh, as an example, not an actual event. And a wide ranging of topics that you covered. For example, um, getting funding for startups, how that's progress, and all of the related items the, the interesting thing for me, at the, overall, I guess, was that I thought Bitcoin was it, but it isn't. It's the blockchain. Uh, I mean, Bitcoin just happens to be an application that's, or a process that's been put onto that underlying fundamental, whatever you call it. I'm not IT. Kevin said something like, more or less, <laughs> but I'm not even, I'm, I'm a dinosaur when it comes to that part of the world. It's also one of the things that sort of came through to me quite often was where this is all going to lead, uh, particularly from a social and financial point of view. By the social aspect, what I mean is the seeming difficulty that governments are going to have to control what's flowing through it and what that, how, that, how they can overcome that and I, and I get that there's a lot of people that want to reduce control almost to non-existent. I personally, coming from the old school, see that as a negative. I think humans haven't got to the point yet in, in our development where we can be trusted. I, I really that's, believe... That's, that's exactly why we need the blockchain. That's the exact reason. No, but underneath that, it's if people get into that and then there's no control over them. Over and they the manipulate it. Yeah, that's what I mean. Mm. Certainly, peer-on-peer -peer is fine. We are you doing, doing a deal with somebody and you getting that agreed and tested and, and you know that it's factual. But when you get hold of it and somebody makes use of it, i.e. the Silk Road, uh, and the difficulty they had, they were actually lucky seemingly getting hold of that. But, but getting you know, hold of the underlying troubles in the Silk Road. But you know what's so interesting, Tim, is, and this is why I wanted to bring Jimmy in to talk about this, because a lot of the analogy is made that the that blockchain is analogous to the internet in 1995. And uh, it's I wanted to bring Jimmy in, and it's it's interesting because it's, it's been an enthusiast's territory up until now, but a total technological outsider, with all due respect, yeah, Jimmy, <laughs> um, <happens> true. <laughs> um, is starting to get their head around these these technologies. I mean, I think, I'll just take on board one of Jimmy's points, which I think is very, very valid about governments wanting to try and control this. I don't think they will actually control it per se. I think they'll embrace it. And we're already seeing a number of 
nations looking at setting up digital cryptocurrencies. Even Australia is looking at it, allegedly. And one of the the powers, Estonia, right? Yes, I mean they, Estonia. They, they, they're always on the cutting edge, Estonia. I've got to go visit that place. Funnily enough, Dubai. I, I, I was speaking at a conference in Dubai literally a couple of weeks ago, and uh, what they're doing there, they are deliberately trying to take over from Estonia. But that's a much wider issue. But the the the, the power of a digital currency from a from a, a governmental point of view is you can see where money is being spent in real time. Uh-huh. So you can imagine the statistics you can pull from Precisely that. Precisely right. The right. data you're going to get from that in terms of controlling the economy, you can say, right, the money's being spent on cars or the money's being spent on houses or, or it's being spent or, wherever it's being spent. Or how's this if suddenly all this cold and flu medication, right, one week starts getting, uh, getting spent. I mean, Google helps with this as well. You can see health trends. Precisely. You can actually judge and you can plan the whole economy on the basis of digital data coming from the currency. So I think I think in terms of controlling it, they will have a nightmare trying to control it, but they'll embrace the technology. That's the way that I see it. Great. I, I probably missed that government would be able to see what was happening. I sort of saw the whole lot as subterranean, i.e. a deal between two people or a conglomerate, and that one had to be within that process to be able to even see what was going on. Now, if, if there is, if data can be withdrawn from it by an external party that shows what's happening, then a lot of what I said gets taken away because I saw it as being totally subterranean, not accessible, and therefore open to things like the silk trade and other things, silk road, I mean. And that's where I was uh, a little bit reticent about I see the fantastic advantages of this and where it's going and, and a host of things. You know, provenance, as an example, the, the what is it, the I-net or something? The, the thing-net? What do you call it? Uh, it's it's a, the development of uh, things rather than... Oh, the Internet of Things. IoT, you know, that's, that seems to have unlimited... Potential. I think. I think also where um, where you talk about subterranean. I think and and Tim may have greater insight into this is when you say countries are deve- potentially developing their own digital currencies. So Bitcoin is anonymous or quasi anonymous, but a country can craft their own programmable money, for lack of a better word, that does provide insight to a certain degree of transactions that differs to Bitcoin. Is that correct? Am I correct in Absolutely. saying that? Absolutely. That's, that, that's, so that's their aim. In, I mean, obviously, it's not going to happen a week on Tuesday, but it's in the medium term, that's where they're, That's where a lot of countries are heading. The Philippines are looking at it. Estonia, as you quite rightly highlight. You know, Dubai. There's, I mean, as I say, even Australia is looking at it. So it's, it's going to happen in the medium term. But in the very short term, some of the major banks are actually working with the cryptocurrency community, such as Ether, uh, Ethereum, for uh-huh. example, is actually working with Banco Santander, and they're creating a currency, for example, called Cash ETH, where the digital currency is actually backed by Banco Santander's money. I, so, I, and, and I've said this, I've got a friend that works in finance and um, you know their, their operations, it's a boutique investment bank, but they very well connected. And I keep on saying to him, through your connections in Australia, even just a, a, 
a wallet that's aligned with a bank. I don't know why it hasn't happened. It is the most obvious thing in the it's, world. It's going. It's it's already happening. It's 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 right in the in the development labs right now. But it's it's absolutely happening. You can bet your bottom dollar. I mean, CBA here in Australia have got their own innovation labs, and uh, I mean, obviously they keep their cards very close to their chest. Understandably, what they're doing. But I would lay money that they're they're working deeply on something like this. If they would be fools not to. It, the yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it's it's the way things are going to go. There's yeah. no question about the, it. The, I think his name's Ian Nuriev, the CEO of uh, Combank. Um, yeah. um, a few months ago uh, at a talk actually said, if we don't, as an industry, innovate very quickly, we are not going to exist in a few years. They know it, so so they know it. It's so going to be death by a thousand cuts, where little bits of all their businesses, the most profitable bits are going to be eaten away. So, Jimmy Shimwell, thank you very much for joining us. Jimmy is an uh, internal accountant at Manage Flitter, and um, he's, uh, he's, the, he's the philosopher in residence as well, <laughs> I would say. Um, Kate, would you agree? Philosopher in residence is a good title for him? Yeah, philosophy in residence, and um, and Jimmy seemed to enjoy the book about the blockchain down the rabbit hole. Tim's book, so I'm sure, and and I know I keep going on about it, but I used to say this about the internet. I used to say this about Twitter. Uh, my track record is is relatively good, my ego says. So, <laughs> so if you, it's a great place to start down the rabbit hole. I've bought a ton of books on cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, and and Tim's is is one of them as well. So, Jimmy, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. We might drag you now that we've now that we've uh, broken the seal. We may drag you in every now and then, oh, especially yeah. for your more philosophical opinion someday. It'll have to be, not related to IT. <laughs> thanks, Jimmy. Okay, thanks. So, Tim, let's, let's get into the heart and the juice of it. You've just come back from New York. I mean, the last two weeks have been absolutely mad. We spoke about on last week's podcast where Bitcoin hit a new high. I think it's peaked at about 2,800 US for one uh, Bitcoin. Obviously, Ethereum's got mad as well. We can talk a little bit about Ethereum, um, which which has just burst onto the scene. And I mean, what I love most about Ethereum is created about a 23-year-old Russian kid, right? Which is just so much what the spirit of the the, the new sort of technology has been about since the internet that it just gets disrupted from the side by someone that just, you know, out of the blue and just changes everything. And then you have um, big organizations shaking in their boots about a, a technology created by a 23-year-old, you know. But let's, let's the floor's yours. I guess, I guess <laughs> let's, let, let's, let's, and I also want to chat about um, the CD, uh, the, the ICOs? The, the ICOs, which a lot of people have been ask, asking me about the ICOs. But let's first talk about the last few weeks, um, about uh, the Bitcoin, about Ethereum. What's gone on that it suddenly has just gone on such a bull run, the cryptocurrency side of things? Well, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, uh, I was at Consensus, which is the, the world's largest blockchain conference in New York. And there were about 2,700 people there. So it, I mean, it was up from about 1,500 last year. And it was manic the the whole place was just buzzing phones were buzzing left right and center with new notifications of the highest on bitcoin the highest in ethereum all this type of stuff and you're right in the epicenter of yeah, you know, 2,700 people who are just total crypto enthusiasts and blockchain enthusiasts and who are living, eating, breathing crypto. And it was just, it was, it was crazy because there Were was there also Winklevoss twins there? Um, they live in New York and they've been trying to get a, a, a cryptocurrency yeah, ETF or they've something. They've tried to get an ETF approved four times now. I mean, I went to a number of the regulatory sessions and in New York, the regulators are 
way behind so many other regulators that right? worldwide. That, yeah, that, absolutely. That surprises me because the startup conferences I've been to New York, they've always got representatives from the state and from the city pushing for New York to be at the cutting edge and to getting the smartest people from around the world moving to New York. Yeah. I mean, I mean, New York, New York itself is full of incredibly bright people. I met so many interesting people when I was there. But the regulators as a whole, I mean, I'm, I'm comparing to, say, Singapore, the UK, and here in Australia, right. where, for example, we've got a sandbox, right? right, where you can actually, within certain confines, not just blockchain, but other technologies, you can play with fintech services. They haven't got anything like that in, in the States, for example. And it was very much, I was at this, this, this panel where they had four really high-profile lawyers in, in, uh, in New York. And it was, almost, it was almost as if, well, yeah, we're, we're starting to talk to the regulators a bit and there's, there's a little bit of engagement. Whereas here in Australia, last year, one of the fintech meetup groups, the, the guy that coordinates that had five of the regulators in a room talking to 300 startups. Interesting. So, new, so uh, at least New York, at least is. I mean, maybe they've been, maybe they've been a little bit distracted with the last year, with uh, the last two years with well, politics. They, in yeah, in yeah. I mean, the politics undoubtedly has had some influence, but in New York, they tried to implement what is known as the Bit License, mm-hmm. which was to regul- try and regulate the uh, the Bitcoin exchanges and the whole Bitcoin environment. And it's just been a, it's been. To quote a number of people within the industry there, it's been a farce. A lot of people refuse to even deal with New York State now. They actually deliberately set up their accounts and, and anybody who's got a New York, uh, New York State IP address, they can't ac- get access to a lot of services. So it's, it's, it's backfiring and the, the biggest challenge is that innovation and, tech, innovation and regulation are always going to be you know, completely in juxtaposed positions. The regulators are always way, way, way behind the innovation. And when it comes to regulation with ICOs, as you're talking about, the majority of the initial coin offerings, the ICOs or token sales, most of the, the ICOs will not enable people from the states to actually buy into the ICOs. And of course, another factor that pushed uh, all of this ahead was Japan lifting its 8% tax on Bitcoin, um, using Bitcoin as a currency for day-to-day transactions. Right? And it's the same here in Australia with the double taxation. That's now been lifted. So it's, you know, it, the, the other regulators around the world are far more, they're far more ahead as compared to, to the states in general terms. And that really came across. Mm, surprising. I mean, we had Anil Dash on the podcast, um, a New York-based entrepreneur um, and commentator, and he actually worked with the Obama administration on tech. And one of the things that he said is that the tech literacy in Congress is frighteningly low. He said frighteningly low. And he said that's a real, real issue. And he and and if I'm quoting him correctly, he did say the current administration is even worse. So it's, I mean, th- th- that's a problem. But Tim, let's, let's talk a bit about Ethereum because a yeah. lot of people haven't he- hadn't heard of Ethereum before the last couple of weeks. Compare and contrast a little bit the difference between uh, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and how does the block? How is the blockchain common to both, and what's the different use cases for okay. both? Okay. Well, let's let's start with Bitcoin. I mean, blockchain is the technology that underpins Bitcoin. That's the easiest way to say that. Now, Bitcoin is uh, as a technology is absolutely amazing. The more I've written about it, the more I've researched it, the more I've talked to people about it. If we ever knew who Satoshi Nakamoto was, he'd be up for a Nobel uh, Prize for economics or something. It's What's amazing. the latest on that theory, by the way? Group of people. Um, it's you know, well, it, it's it, all it, over. Is it the Mark shop. Andreessen? You know. <laughs> well, the the 
I mean, in the book, I'll sort of look at some of uh-huh. the some of the theories. And one of the, my favorite one, if I'm brutally honest, is they talk about Satoshi in Japanese means wisdom. And they talk about Nakamoto meaning middle with the island. I think it's the middle of the Reiku Islands is, the, is where Nakamoto as, as a word sort of comes from. So the idea is middle wisdom implies central intelligence agency. Uh, so gee, some people think it could be the NSA and, and the CIA. I mean, personally, I Are think... Are that smart? With all due respect uh, the to NSA, them? The NSA, yeah, have, yeah they're, they're, they, they do a lot of stuff. I mean, just ask Snowden, who's in Russia at the moment. But I think, personally, because you know, Satoshi Nakamoto, whoever he, she, or they is, still have a million Bitcoins locked into the into you know, just held, which has never been moved. But one thing I've wondered, right, that they released a white paper, right? That's how this all started. Correct, right. in November 2008, originally. Okay, is there no reverse engineering how this white paper was released and where it was released? From? Oh, they've they've got an email address for Satoshi Nakamoto, but he went completely offline in uh-huh. 2011. So they would have covered their tracks. Yeah, completely. And and right. the 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 theory is it could be a number of people, a variety of people, but bearing in mind there's a million bitcoins, which is today's value is uh, I've got to get make sure I get my maths it's right. It's a million it's, times. It's, it's 2, about 2.2 billion. 2.2 yep. 2 billion. Yep. Of, of actual cash, just waiting for somebody to hack if they, they really wanted to. And it hasn't been touched ever since day one. And the theory, there are two core theories that are going around. One theory is that he's dead, he's died, and that the keys have been lost, or just the keys have been lost. Because Mount Cox. No, no, no <laughs> it, oh, it, 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 yeah, I mean, that could be an interesting idea. But, you know, the theory is that, uh, that the, the, the private keys have just been lost or the actual person who is Satoshi Nakamoto has passed away and they can't find the keys. Look, I mean, if, and we'll continue down uh, explaining the, the, the Bitcoin versus um, yeah. Ethereum, but if um, Ethereum could be created by, I think his name's Vitaly? Vitalik Buterin is his right. name. I mean, I mean, it's in tandem with others. I mean, there's a sure, foundation. There's sure, a foundation. But, but spearheaded by him as a 23-year-old, there's no doubt that... That, um, this white paper that it could have been written by one very incredibly smart individual. Oh yeah, absolutely. Mm. I mean, I mean, in terms of writing white papers, I mean, we're writing a white paper right now for what for our token sale in July. But it's it takes a lot of work and it requires a lot of different parties to get involved. So yeah, I mean, I mean, Vitalik Bruterin and his team are. Incredible, and there's there's there are, there's there's a company in New York called Consensus with a Y that is run by a guy called Joe Lubin, who was one of the original um, Ethereum Foundation members and creators, and they're taking a much they're pushing it much more in a commercial direction. It seems to be, and there's rumours that Vitalik himself is going to take himself back from the limelight to concentrate just on on the product. So let's so let's just backpedal again yep. uh, a bit. So if, if people um, you know still don't quite understand the Ethereum piece, Bitcoin is built upon blockchain technology and it is a cryptocurrency or as I like to say, you know, it's programmable money. I know that's a little bit of an oversimplification. Yep. But it, it does have elements of that. How does Ethereum and Ether fit into that? Okay. Ethereum basically have created a platform to enable smart contracts to happen. And I'll just give a quick thumbnail of what smart contracts is or are, sorry, should I say. Basically, if you think of a vending machine, if you put your money in, you look for your product, you pick it, you get your sweets out, that's the end of the transaction. Mm-hmm. Now, the actual vending machine itself carries out all the, the programming in the background, with, which is basically an if-then statement. So if you put your money in, then the food comes out. 
And essentially, smart contracts are a very, very powerful vending machine. It's mm-hmm. probably the best way. And of programmable vending. It's machine, programmable. Right? So, and for example, uh, that's the the really interesting. Absolutely, piece. and especially when it comes to looking at things like the Internet of Things and those type of other technologies. I'll give you an example, just to sort of, just so your listeners can sort of get an idea of where this is coming in. Back in uh, October, November time last year, the CBA and Wells Fargo Bank looked at a transaction. This was very, very, very well publicised, where there was cotton that was going from Queensland in, in northern uh, Australia across to China. Now, once the actual product hit a certain longitude and latitude, there were sensors on the boat that picked up, they'd gone through that latitude, which meant they were in Chinese waters. That then enabled a smart contract, if then, if we get past this longitude latitude, then money will be released. And so that was an incident of a smart contract being looked at for trade finance. So the actual transaction, instead of it taking three days for money to get internationally, the monies were affected in about 35 minutes, I think, from memory. Uh, Don't quote me on that. So, Tim, do you think, I mean, uh, blockchain technology, Ethereum... It's very similar to the internet of 1995, where today most people and my co-host and co-producer Kate is sitting here with me and uses the internet every day. Now, I would bet my bottom dollar, and I don't mean to put Kate on the spot, that Kate doesn't know what TCPIP is, right? Heard of the word? No, haven't heard of the road. Now, in the internet in 1995, you'd probably be hard-pressed at least not to hear of the word. I'd agree. Right. So is the uh, is the Ethereum and blockchain revolution going to affect everyone, but basically in a few years no one will actually even know what it's about? I th- exactly right. I think it's going to be you – know, nobody cares how the waterworks work, work. All they want is the water come out of the tap. Mm. And it's going to be exactly that same idea, that there'll be lots of services being offered. You won't know that the blockchain's in the background, but it will be. And it's uh, yeah, where it'll it'll take away trusted entities all through yeah, all through the the economy. Now the the example that you gave the smart contract of cotton, um, you know, being sold and distributed and 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 delivered for some people may sound like something that's actually quite boring and not relevant to them. Can you give us something? <laughs> that, that <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, um, I mean, a lot of the use cases that have been developed within financial services, right? Realistically speaking, I mean, there are there are lots of um, people. People like spinning logos and they like cats. I know, I know. I, like well, I can't <laughs> think of a cat in a smart contract. I mean, I don't know. I mean, I guess, uh, I, I mean, we're working on, on royalty distribution for film and video. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, it's still a little bit sort of business to business in terms of the smart contracts, but it's the idea as soon as money comes in for a film or video, by smart contracts, it automatically spits out the money to everybody that's been involved. So, for example, this can often be the case if you've got a, a rock band, for example, that's produced a song and maybe there was a bass guitarist that played the licks, there was a drummer, this type of thing, and they, you know, they will actually have a percentage of the, the royalties coming in. So uh, a smart contract would enable, as soon as the song gets royalties from being played on the radio, then bang, the money gets distributed to all the, the artists that have played. That, that type of thing is another example. With cats and dogs, I'm just trying to think <laughs> That's okay. um, how we can, I, how I we can look put at you on the spot. So, yeah. Um, Bitcoin and Ether, which is the coin, so to speak, the cryptocurrency on top of Ethereum, are, are, are in a way only loosely related to the technology that's that's underpinning it. And I think I think what we need to do as well is, I mean, we do, we don't give any financial advice; we're not qualified to as well. But people people need to tread a little bit carefully in this world. I mean, I've, I, I've had a lot of people that called me when they saw that Bitcoin just just went from eight hundred dollars, you know, to two thousand eight hundred. But it's still it's still a bit of the wild west out there, it's, right? 
yeah, I mean, in the past two years, Bitcoin has risen by 800%. I mean, that's, that's insane. I mean, I'm happy because I've got some Bitcoin, but it is, it's absolutely insane. And when, uh, when I was at the consensus conference, and there was actually another conference the day after called the Token Forum, which is just dedicated to looking at initial coin offerings, which I know we're going to touch on in a second. But that, they had a waiting list of 250 people to get into a, a room of about 150 people. It just gives you the indication that it was really hype, you know, hotting up. And because there's a lot of new money that's come into the Bitcoin and into Ethereum over the past three months, because the cryptocurrency market capitalization has doubled in the past three months. But it's still small enough to be manipulated, right? Yeah, it's still small enough to be manipulated. I mean, I did take some, some indication of some numbers just to sort of put it into perspective. I mean, the cryptocurrency market literally as of today is worth about $84 billion. So it's not, if you think that's probably, I don't know what the size of Google or Apple are, but it's probably about the size of Twitter's one. about ten billion. So right, and then the smaller end of things. Yeah. So so eighty four billion is not massive, but what you've what you've actually got to be aware of, and anybody getting involved in Bitcoin and Ethereum or other cryptocurrencies, is that people have been in this for a, for a long period of time. There are people who have bought Bitcoin for a dollar maybe back in two thousand and ten, and those are now sort of worth. I mean, it's just insane amounts of money. And so you've got people, you've got what is known as whales in the marketplace. And they actually push the price up and they push the price down. Who, who it's are these people? These are people who have actually just bought individuals? or mined or mined, yeah, mined Bitcoin over the, last, over the last five, six years. I think if you would have bought, bought $100 worth of Bitcoin in 2010, it would be worth something like $4 million or It's something, something insane. Or, uh, it's but ridiculous. what happened yeah. was at the, the um, consensus conference and the, and the coin... Um, summit, and there was also a thing called the Ethereal um, Summit the, on the Thursday beforehand. Everything was just consolidated and concertinaed into these into this week of sheer pulsating sort of cryptocurrency space. So everything was the prices were just going crazy, and it was and it was at that that sort of point I looked at the charts and said, "Hang on a second, this is this just can't go up because if ever you see a parabolic rise." In any cryptocurrency, you know there's going to be a parabolic fall directly after. If it goes up that insanely, when it got up to 2,800, and indeed in South Korea it was trading at $3,000, you just sort of say, well, yes, it's got it's got value from its network effect, but that's way over the top. So, like I, myself, like others, hedged a bit, just sort of thinking, hang on a second, this could be a bit concerning. So I sold out of some and then transferred into US dollars. The key thing is that then plummeted by about. 30 30, 35% in the space of about a matter of hours. Mm. And that, what, what, what you notice happens whenever there's any hint of any bad news. You know, I mean, bad news in stocks and shares and anything else like that normally pushes the price down. But the whales get behind any bad news and they push it down further because they know that anybody getting in around now is going to be f fairly fresh money. And they know they'll that panic easily. They'll panic because. Yeah. All markets are driven by two primal features. One is fear and one is greed. And if you can be fearful when others are greedy and, and that's greedy right. when others Warren are fearful. Warren Buffett, that's, that's what he says. It. And you know what? It is so it is it is so true. I had a friend and uh, you know, I love him. He's a good friend of mine and, and, and he wanted to buy some cryptocurrency and I said, Be careful. And as he bought it started going down and he said, you know, whenever I buy something, it goes down. It's because it's because it's people get in on the hype cycle. 
Right. That's, that's it. It's the fear of missing out. It's yeah. the greed. You know, I don't want to miss out. Don't want to miss out. And then, of course, it plummeted by thirty-five percent. Now, I mean, I, I, I mean, like others, I waited until it bounced back a couple of times to make sure that it came back up. And I, I, you know, I bought in. in the, I don't know about it was about eighteen hundred just on the way back up. And luckily, it's at about two thousand two hundred. I'm not saying I'm a guru. Far from it. I just no one's know. a guru. That's the thing. No, no one no. can beat the market. If someone, t- I think, as I said to another friend the other day, that. Um, I think there's probably about 10 people in the world that can consistently beat the market. Probably the guys that own the 10 biggest hedge funds, you know, your Ray Dalio and, and those people. Everyone else can't beat the market. <laughs> okay. And if you think you can, good luck it's, with that one. I think it's one of those things, if anybody's going to get involved in cryptocurrency markets, just only play, if ever you do, and quite right as you say, this is not investment advice, just only play with what you can afford to lose. Because let's, qu- let, let's quickly talk about, um, a lot of people ask about the mechanics of buying cryptocurrency. It is a bit of fun to be in this game. So yes, play with what is absolutely meaningless money for you. Um, don't don't put grandma's uh, superannuation yeah, in there. That's right. Um, you, need, you, you need an exchange where you can actually um, exchange you know, normal fiat money into cryptocurrency. Correct. And often these exchanges have a wallet, a, t- a, a hosted and in the cloud wallet attached yes. to it, right? Yeah, I mean, one has to be very, very careful because 30% of all exchanges have been hacked. And I've been, I saw you posted that on, on the Sydney Startups Group and I've been telling everyone that stat. Yeah. I'm, say, I'm saying, buy it, but remember, Ne- you know, nearly half of, of these online wallets have been hacked, yeah, which um, means you, you could lose everything. Because if you think about the reality, most of those cryptocurrency exchanges have been set up within the past two to three years. So they are new starts. Mm. So as a result, they won't have a lot of capital behind them to actually either you know, recuperate losses or have put the infrastructure in place. So absolutely be very, very cautious with the with the exchanges. That said, I mean, I mean, I personally use a company, well, a, a US exchange called Poloniex. Uh-huh. I've heard uh, of that one because they yeah. do a th- ether as well, right? They do, yeah, they've got about one hundred and thirty different cryptocurrencies that they that they have, and they've they've put some very strong. Um, security measures in place, so there's a minimum amount that's actually connected directly to the to the internet. Lots of it's in cold storage, and the same with a company called Bittrex. The same. They, these have both got very good reputations. Of course, they could get hacked. So and you don't really know what I mean. On. I mean, we have an online company, and and you, but unless you people that are working with our infrastructure every day, you actually don't know what the quality of the security is. I mean, see, online security is, is almost can be considered just like real-world security, right? It can always be better. It's only as strong as its weakest link. You can have all the security in the world, and if it's an inside job, it, it means absolutely nothing. That's, that's absolutely right, because one of the things about the, the Bitcoin and the blockchain in general is that we are becoming our own banks, because we've actually got the private keys to our cryptocurrencies. Now, what that means is if somebody gets your private key, that's like you leaving an open wallet on the table. So this is an interesting point as well, because you can have a wallet in the cloud, which is on one of these services, but you could also have a wallet on your own computer, 
right? And where, in a way, you become responsible for the security. Which you are absolutely. And it's, you know, there are there is dedicated malware out there looking for private keys. So you've got to be very clever and you've got to be very careful. And it's quite ironic because a lot of people who, who own a lot of Ethereum or Bitcoin actually put their private keys on a bit of paper and put it into a safety deposit box in a bank, uh, wow. which I find is so ironic that it the, is, it is the technology that full disrupts, I know, the technology that disrupts is actually protected by the technology it's trying to disrupt. There was an article in the Sydney Morning Herald this week, I'm sure you saw it, about some chap that threw away a hard drive <laughs> a few <laughs> years ago and he's realised that it had some, some Bitcoin sitting on there and it's... That's, I mean, you hear so many of those stories. I mean, the very, very first ever transaction was for two pizzas for, tw- yeah. for 22,000 um, Bitcoin, which in today's <laughs> money would be it's worth... an expensive pizza. About $450 million or something. And I believe there is a USB wallet that is very secure, has got all sorts of interesting features where if you lose it, you can transfer it to another USB key. Um, I'll, just, I'll just actually bring up the name. I'll confirm the name of that uh, product. I haven't actually tried it myself, but I am... It's, uh, that's an interesting angle as yeah, well. Yeah, Trezos are probably the, the, the biggest one. I mean, I, I mean, I'm, uh, I haven't actually got one myself yet, but I'm about to, to get a hold of one. I'll just... Um, it's called the Ledger Nano. Okay, yeah, one? that's another one. Yeah, there, 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 there are a few brands yeah. coming up. So um, that, that's an interesting... So if you are wanting to buy a few cryptocurrencies, get to understand a little bit of the difference between the, the different wallets and how you have to look after them just like cash. It's even more important than just your email address. It's actually cash sitting there. So treat it as rich and don't assume that these companies are all created equal. I use, in Australia, I use CoinJar. Right. Yes, I haven't got into the Ether game yet. There was another Australian company someone recommended to me that does Ether as well. I, do, long, I, I, I use name. BTC Markets. Right. Uh, I mean, I know the guys there. I mean, again, the, all these exchanges, it is caveat emptor, you know, that, that they could get hacked. I'm not saying they will, but, but they could, you know. But that's, that's, I mean, entering the cryptocurrency space is not for the, the faint-hearted. It's not for those that don't have an element of, of, of risk appetite, or at least understanding the risks, I think is probably the key way of saying it. And look, I mean, that's why people love property so much, because there's a psychological benefit of being able to see your investment and that, it, in theory, at least in the big cities, it can't really just go poof and it's gone. Whereas with cryptocurrencies or even with shares, I mean, in Australia, we had HIH, people lost everything. Um, there, were, there were, you know, other, you know, shares can just literally go poof too. And that's why regulation is so important. And and uh, there's a time and a place for government. And I think, you know, making sure that, that these markets stay uh, above board and, 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 and liquid and um, legitimate is incredibly important because that's, then we can all do exciting things on top of the markets. But without that, it's impossible. I, I, I would actually agree with you. I mean, and, and, a, and a true testament to this is are the initial coin offerings, you know, because those are... Well, let's, let's talk about these because these have been popping up all over. Yeah. Now, I know startups, you know, in the startup world, one of the biggest challenges is, is getting um, capital for your startup. So either, you know, it comes from your own back pocket, it comes from sweat equity, or it comes from external investment. But now, now there's this whole new world of, of, of raising mean, it's, for your startup. It's incredible as a structure for... It's, and it's not going to work for every business, I have to mm-hmm. say that front end, but... These things called initial coin offerings or token sales that they are strictly speaking beginning to be to be dubbed as are neither debt nor equity. Mm-hmm. And you can raise significant amounts of money without it actually being debt, which you have to pay back, or it is equity. 
Okay, it's neither, so neither of those two. So, so I'll give you an example. With uh -huh. Ethereum, we spoke about Ethereum before, mm -hmm. all right? Ethereum is the, the cryptocurrency that powers the Ethereum network, which looks at administering smart contracts, as we were talking about earlier on. So every time a smart contract is carried out, you pay a small bit of Ether, mm -hmm. yeah, which is their cryptocurrency coin. So the idea is the more successful the platform, the more of those Ethers are required and the more the price rises. Mm -hmm. Okay? So as a result, what you've actually got is a cryptocurrency that as the platform that's being developed gets better and better and better, the price with reasonable expectation will rise. Now, you know, so from, from that particular point of view, initial coin offerings, I mean, they raised about $18 million in November 2014. And those cryptocurrency coins at that, that time were issued at $0.35, cents, and they're now worth about $220. So in two and a half years, it's just insane growth. So the, what actually happens is with initial coin offerings, it's just like crowdfunding, mm -hmm. but for blockchain-based platforms. So for example, if you think of a traditional crowdfunding structure, maybe there's a new mobile phone you're creating, whatever it might be, mm -hmm. people actually pay money up front to get the mobile phone. The organization that's selling them then arranges to get those produced and maybe you get the product in 12, 18 months time. Okay, so with crowdfunding, you've got that you've got that lead time of maybe 12, 18 months before you actually get the product. So it's a bit of a leap of faith. With the cryptocurrency space, just like the Ethereum structure where the token or the cryptocurrency coin is being used to power that platform, what happens is people buy the token up front. Okay. And then you know, to the, the combination of everybody buying all those tokens gives enough money to develop the platform. So it, does it have to be a platform-based business? Essentially, the majority are. Now, I mean, a token can represent a digital asset. For example, there's, there are a couple, I mean, there are 820 cryptocurrencies around. A couple of those are actually backed by gold or one's backed by U.S. currency. So, it can, you know, so the token can be represented by an asset behind it. But the majority are based around platforms. So, for example, I mean, I'll, I'll paint an example. We're developing a decentralized anti-piracy and distribution platform for the film and video industry. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what we're trying to do is trying to bring together all the creative community to help us solve a problem that affects the whole creative community. Okay, and so what we're doing is, if you've heard of SETI, you know SETI sure. out of Berkeley, the search sure. for extraterrestrial intelligence. So they beam data out into the into space. Data comes back. They don't have the processing power to process it all. They put it out to about three million people around the world, and those guys run a bit of software on their computer, and the data is then processed and sent back to Berkeley. And then they hand over the info to the NSA. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly get rewarded with Bitcoin from there. No, but um, so so what we're doing is creating the SETI for searching for pirated content. Right. All right. So in yeah, individuals will run a, a little bit of software on their on their their computer, use a bit of their surplus bandwidth, and w when the actual when they find pirated content, they then get rewarded via a cryptocurrency, which will be Ventana, which is the name of the coin that we're launching. So the idea is that we're actually rewarding people it's like for a bounty. finding. 
Yeah, it, for finding pirated content, but it's it's all software driven. It's mm. not they don't have to do anything. So it's just committing bandwidth and computing power, like Bitcoin. You know, Bitcoin is produced by lots and lots of computer power, lots and lots of electricity, and providing you can get a Bitcoin in, which is worth more than the electricity that, that it costs you to produce, you're making money. And it's the, you know, that's the same structure that we're looking at. So other you know, initial coin offerings do a similar type of thing, where there will be a reason for the token to exist. So say there's someone living in a country town and they all decide that they want an, an, an e-commerce site that just sells healthy food because it's hard to get healthy food in the town. And, and the right. one person says, I'd like to create an e-commerce site to make um, you know, healthy food available in Whoop Whoop. And I could go to Kickstarter and do something and get some money to, to you know, create this for the town. Is this funding structure, could it be fitted into that yeah. type of model? Not really, because you can do that with traditional structures. You just create a, a website, you put up Whole Food, there you go, there's, there's cash, and you've got a standard e-commerce site. But for example, you know, with, with what we're doing, we're also creating a distribution platform right. for people to actually enable white hat BitTorrenting. So the idea is, instead of people putting up a video and it's illegal and everybody's sharing it, we want to do a white hat version so that people can get rewarded for making available some bandwidth. So it's almost when there is a benefit in creating their own ecosystem and own currency that is only and useful in that network. Absolutely. And it's, it's for example... It might be that people might get a cent for contributing part of their bandwidth to enabling, I don't know, let's say Silicon Valley from HBO, which I'm a big fan of as a TV show, you know, for, for actually yeah, helping to distribute that to a whole network of people. Uh, and, you know, if you do it as a, a cent in the traditional reward mechanism, right. credit card fees are 35 cents a pop. So you can't do it. It's but, so, so they would get many cents in this, let's just call it V-coin. Yes. And through some exchange, eventually, if well, they want to... That's, that, this is the key thing. This is the major difference between a crowdfunding structure like Kickstarter uh -huh. and a, a, an ICO or a token sale. Because literally, about normally between three to four weeks after an initial coin offering has happened, the cryptocurrency tokens are available on the cryptocurrency exchanges to be sold, you know, bought and sold against Bitcoin. And the so market defines the value. So there's liquidity quite quickly. There's liquidity very quickly. So instead of waiting for your, your mobile phone for 12, 18 months, uh -huh. you, can actually, you, know, you can actually sell your tokens if you wanted to, or you keep holding them, right? But, but the market will determine the value against Bitcoin. So what you, what you see in the market with cryptocurrencies in general, and we'll, we'll talk about Ethereum specifically, because that's, you know, that's relevant to what we've been talking about. When Ethereum announced what is known as the Ethereum Alliance, where they were bringing in 200 major corporates to work with them. Companies like you know, Samsung, for example, they're working with, with Ethereum. The price just rocketed, all right? Because immediately that implies if you've got a major, you've got a major- it's confidence. It's confidence. Mm -hmm. And it's a major company coming in to say, I support this currency. And if that's the case, the platform itself is going to grow and the price will therefore grow. So you, you've got these dynamics that are going on that, and it's very similar to an equity, very similar in terms of if you look at you know, buying into an equity in, uh, in any market, you're going to look at the, the core features of the company that's actually 
there. So whether it's, I don't know, sort of Telstra in Australia's a telecoms sector, you're gonna, you, you might sort of see that they've done some amazing stuff and there's new technology and the price starts to rise. It's exactly the same sort of mechanics um, driving the fundamentals of a cryptocurrency coin. But that is the, that's the big difference between the crowdfunding and a cryptocurrency structure because there is liquidity literally within four to six weeks of putting your money in. Interesting. And it's um, any other examples of out there that people are doing this successfully and what the platforms are? Oh, well, there's today, literally, uh-huh. you know, the 1st of June, there was one that raised $35 million in 30 seconds. So talk us through the mechanics of what money flowed where or what money didn't flow where and who now has what. Okay. So basically... Under normal circumstances with an initial coin offering or a token sale, and those are both euphemistically the same. Mm -hmm. I I don't like the word ICO, I have to say, Mm -hmm. because it sounds like it's too much like a regulated structure. But basically people will generally pay up front for the tokens in either Ethereum or in Bitcoin. Right. So they will… um, they will start up with some investment into yes, the token. Yes, absolutely. They, they, they will be supporting an ICO or a token sale through through Bitcoin or through Ethereum. Right. So then the Bitcoin and Ethereum is then transferred over to the to the parties that are running the, the initial coin offering and then via smart contracts, in other words, this if-then. So if the value hits a certain amount that they say they need, then the ICO actually happens. So if, for example, let's say there's a threshold where they say, right, we need to get this to work, we need $5 million. Let's just say that for random random mm-hmm. numbers. And if they hit $2 million only, then the smart contract says, yeah, if it's less than $5 million, then the money is returned, back. for yep. example, less perhaps an escrow fee or something like that. But if it goes over $5 million, then that money is then committed and the coins are then, the cryptocurrency coins or the tokens are then issued. And then once those, those coins are formally issued, and they then get put onto the exchanges, that's when you have the liquidity event. Super, super interesting. I've got a video, a five-minute video introducing ICOs, and I did an article for the Australian Financial Review a couple of weeks ago. So happily, I'll flick you the details of those, and you can make those available to your your audience if that's something you might find useful. Well, if you're listening and you are interested, we've probably either drawn you in or pushed you away, probably one of the two, because it is a bit sort of uh, a a little bit mind-bendy. It reminds me, and I know I keep saying this, but it reminds me so much of the early internet where we were just, we were trying to understand how the pieces fit together. And I was trying to buy books on the internet and sometimes you'd see a big fat book and it would just have not much tangible knowledge. And it's it's similar with blockchain and Bitcoin. You're learning bits and pieces everywhere to paint this big picture of how this all fits together. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. I, I would urge anybody to to at least look into this space. Whether you decide to get involved or not is a different a different matter. But if you understand what you are doing and you have an element of risk tolerance, then the capital growth can be very significant. Ethereum has gone up by, well. Literally, it's gone up by 500% in the past two and a half months, just through all these relationships that have been set up. And this is not investment advice at all. Don't do it. Uh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> if you I mean, do it, don't yeah, do it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I would say 
educate yourself absolutely on anything that you can you can in relation to the cryptocurrency space it's not going away well i, mean, I think particularly if you're listening and you're an entrepreneur or a wannabe entrepreneur just just as the internet opened up opportunities that we couldn't even dream of I and mean, you look at all the jobs today whether it's a social media manager web developer um sys admin i mean you could you could go on and on content marketer all these jobs did not exist all these businesses even if you think of google exist. you think of facebook you They're think of skype businesses. you think of right. uber you think of airbnb they could not exist without the internet if um so if you are um, um, you know, want to be entrepreneur and, and early on in your career, I would literally just this is the, I, this I, is the I, space. I would absolutely agree with you. I'm, I'm old enough and ugly enough to have got involved in the internet way back in February 1995. February, you remember the month, right? I remember it was February the 12th, 1995, what? at 2:16 p.m. in the afternoon. Oh my god! Okay. I went into an internet provider <laughs> on the south coast of England and connected via a 14 4K modem. I remember, I remember those, those well. I right? remember those well. And connected on on this this concrete block that was called a monitor, uh -huh. you know, in those days. And, and there was a, a picture of a, uh, a painting from a local art gallery 10 kilometers away, came up one line at a time. This is where the blockchain is right now. And, you know, I've been involved in it for two years because I, I rode the wave of the internet. And this blockchain, the blockchain is going to be 10, 20 times bigger than the internet. I, I totally agree. It's, um, we were talking, we have a managed for a Twitter chat once a week. And yesterday there was a thread that went on about internet nostalgia. And I was saying, you know, it said to one of the people, do you remember when we used to, the internet was so slow, we would switch off images on our web browsing <laughs> to try funny. to try. And, but, but the thing that's really interesting, what was, the, what was the first browser you ever used? Was it Netscape or did you get? Um, Mosaic. It was pre-Netscape. Right. Okay. Well, there's, right. yeah. Well, I mean, Mozilla was one of the, was one of the very, very we, first well, Mosaic as well. Yeah. Well, I think. I think Mozilla is what Mosaic landed up being. But That's I right. Think, yes. But the, the creators of Mosaic and Mozilla were the guys behind this ICO that closed today. Called, it was called Brave. So what's that, a Mark Andreessen and crew? No, no, no. It's, oh, I've forgotten the guy's name. Because Mark Andreessen was, was the creator of Mosaic and Netscape. Right. Well, it's he's, he, was, he was the he, he created the, the guy behind this created JavaScript and the, right. he was the CTO. So he created a lot of the the tech underpinning it. And this is the one that, that raised thirty five million dollars in thirty seconds. Yeah. Well, we definitely. Um, oh, I, oh, yeah. I mean, I, mean so I could go on for hours about this, but uh, yeah, it's um, it's interesting. I I I'm still marginally frustrated because I don't understand it in completion. The all these technologies, and that's why I'm listening to podcasts and audiobooks and and uh, buying books and uh, there's and actually Princeton has a free online course on cryptocurrency oh, right okay. and I think it it's they, they're not running it actively anymore but the sequence of um, lectures and the course notes are all there yeah. so yeah, I think it's through Udemy Right, uh, yes, could well be. Could um, well be. Yep. So if you're looking for a, a good way to learn it, um, you can you can go to the Princeton course. Um, there, are, there are lots of YouTube channels that that look at uh, look at the whole sort of cryptocurrency market. It's one that's particularly good. I mean, obviously, it's a monkey is the best podcast, so make sure that you stay <laughs> with this one. But there's uh, uh, there's one called Crypto with a zero at the end. He's actually an actor out of uh, out of LA, but he's got into. The, he puts four videos a day out on the cryptocurrency space. Fantastic, um, oh, and it's oh. and it's really worthwhile, really worthwhile checking out. I'd say, but obviously, it's a monkey is the only one to. Oh, I don't, to don't. <laughs>
Don't worry about that. There's there's room there's room for us all, Tim. Tim I know, Lee. I know. Tim Lee, the CEO of Veridictum, is also the author of Down the Rabbit Hole, a fantastic book that even our non-techie internal accountant, Jimmy, um, <laughs> gave it the big <laughs> thumbs up. <laughs> thanks, Jimmy. You're, uh, you're a man of the <laughs> And uh, thanks so much for joining us. We're going to drag you in in a few months again because, um, you know, no doubt the space moves very, very fast. And... Um, yeah, I was excited to see also when Tim and I met. I didn't even know you were a managed Flitter user. And I'm, uh, I've been using, I'm a regular user. And I mean, you know, for for promoting Twitter for an upcoming token sale, it's going to be used 20 we, times over. We've we got to get you on our new more. platform, Managed Social. We've started bringing on a couple of people. Oh, right. Which has Twitter and Instagram. Hey, and a, we're early adopters. We'll, we'll take on anything. I'm very happy to test it out for you. Let's do it. And I really appreciate uh, your time this morning. And, no, uh, thanks, Kevin. And look forward to having you back. Awesome. Thanks. <laughs>